Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast. I have a very special guest for you today. Gelong Tupton is a Buddhist monk, a meditation teacher and author of A Monk's Guide to Happiness. He was educated at Oxford Then he became an actor in London and New York. But in his early 20s, at just 21, he suffered a huge burnout that he tells us about in the episode that led him to change his life. And he went to a Buddhist monastery in Scotland and there he ordained as a monk. So Tutton is a world pioneer in mindfulness meditation. He's got 20 years experience working with schools, universities. He works with businesses like Google. He's lectured at Oxford and the UN, and he even trained all the actors on Doctor Strange, the Marvel movie. This conversation was absolutely brilliant. We unpack what happiness really is, how happiness actually is a choice. We talk about freedom and how so many of us think that we're free, but actually we are prisoners of our crazy minds. We talk about meditation and Tukton does an amazing job of unpacking and reframing some of the myths or resistance that you might have to meditation or maybe if you've tried it before and felt like you weren't doing it right. He talks to that so fantastically. We also talk about children and parenting and how this practice can really radically transform how we are able to show up as parents. I absolutely loved this conversation. If you listen to podcasts, then you'll know that I'm a long-term meditator. So getting to speak to someone like Tukton about my experiences and learning more from him was just a dream come true for me. So here is the episode. I hope you really enjoy it. If you're listening along and thinking about a friend that you would want to share this with, please do share it with them. It's so important to me that the incredible guests that we have on are heard far and wide and we can reach as many mothers as possible with these brilliant messages and ideas. So here is the episode. Galen Tipton, welcome to the podcast. I am so honoured to be sat with you this morning. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, last week or a couple of weeks ago, I had Ella Mills on the podcast and I asked her out of the, I think she's nearing a hundred episodes now, which guest had had the biggest impact on her. And she said you. So I was already excited for this conversation. And now I am kind of at the point of overexcitement, given that of all those incredible guests, you know, she's said that you had profoundly touched her heart with your message and mine too you know I think your book and your work is incredible your story is where I wanted to start because I think it is so inspiring and incredible because you didn't start off on life thinking that you would become a monk did you not at all (laughs) tell us how you sit here this morning this esteemed monk (laughs) well so I became a monk when I was very young I was 21 my life up till that point 
had not been at all monk-like in any way, I never would have imagined I'd end up in a monastery. I mean, there were some kind of background suggestions that it may happen in that my parents are Buddhist. And so I grew up with that sort of background. But to be honest, I never really thought about it. I never really knew what Buddhism was. It was just something that was there in the family background, and I sort of respected it. But in my teens, I kind of went off the rails. I became a bit of a sort of party animal, and I was really burning the candle at both ends. I was living a very kind of hectic lifestyle. After college, I became an actor, and I was living in London, then New York. And Actually, I was quite extreme in my behaviours. I was really wild. I was always the wildest one out of my friends. I don't know what was going on. I think I was just very unhappy and I was sort of covering it all up with just parties and excessive living. And I remember I would have panic attacks. I would get very anxious and I would have these panic attacks that just seemed to come from nowhere. And this built up. It really built up and it led to a sort of burnout it was quite dramatic. I woke up one morning in my flat in, I was living in Brooklyn at the time in, in New York, and I thought I was having a heart attack. I was having all the symptoms of a heart attack, you know, the chest pains, the palpitations. So I managed to get to a doctor and they said, there's something wrong with your heart, but it's probably stress related. I didn't have medical insurance or much money, so I couldn't get proper tests in the States. So I was very, very ill for a while and then managed to get back to the UK and then have all the proper tests done here in the hospitals. And they said, you've had atrial fibrillation, your heart's been beating too fast and it's stress-related. You need to change your lifestyle. And that was the kind of wake-up call that I need to do something really radical to change my lifestyle. I've had such a burnout at such an early age. So then jump from there to a monastery. I know it's quite a leap, but things just happened all at the same time. I was having this horrible illness. A friend of mine told me about a monastery in Scotland called Samuling, which is a Tibetan Buddhist monastery. And she told me that in this monastery, you can go there for like a year out. You can be a monk for one year, almost like a retreat type thing. And I was really struck by this, the thought of doing something very kind of adventurous and radical to kind of change my life. And I went there to this monastery and just fell in love with the place. And within four days, I'd become a monk. Wow. It was only going to be for a year, so it didn't feel like a massive commitment. I was desperate and very ill physically and also in my mind, and so I just needed something. And this felt like a healthy place. It felt good to be on the monk's vows. You know, when you're a monk, you're not going to parties and taking intoxicants, so it would be healthy for me. And then all the meditation and the spiritual support and philosophical help so it felt good, but then obviously it got under my skin. And here I am, you know, 26 years later, I'm still a monk. Because what happened was I was a one-year monk, and then I kept doing one-year periods. Like after the year, I decided to be a monk for another year. So I kept extending my, well, you can't really call it contract, but you know what I mean? <laughs> and then after three or four years like that, I actually decided to take the plunge and be a fully-fledged lifelong monk. So I stopped being a novice and became a full monk and that's it then. I decided this is what I want to do with my life. But it, it built up slowly in me because in the first couple of years, I kept assuming I would leave and go back to my normal life. But I just loved it and got really into the whole notion of staying in the monastery and meditating and, and also kind of giving something back to the world. Because when you're a monk, 
you learn stuff and then you try and pass it on. I mean, not preaching or trying to convert people, but just helping people learn how to meditate if they want to. So that's become my thing that I do now, trying to learn about meditation and pass that on and help people. You do it brilliantly. And I think part of why you do it so well is because you are so relatable in that I think so many people listening will have had panic attacks, will know that feeling. I know I do of heart beating too fast and that chronic stress that you describe. Where were your parents in all this? Were they surprised that you burn out at 21? And were they more surprised that you then said that you were going to Scotland for a year or... Were they kind of stood on the sidelines, nodding their heads? Where were they? They were really worried about me when I was going off the rails. I mean, my mum kept wondering if she'd get a phone call that I'd been arrested or ended up dead or something like that. I mean, she was frightened for me, really frightened for me. So when I told her I'd gone to a monastery, she was delighted. She was relieved. She said, I know you're safe now. But then when I phoned her a few years later, I mean, obviously I kept in touch all that time. But when I gave her the phone call where I said, I'm going to do this for life. She was a bit surprised. She said, oh, I didn't think you'd go that far. (laughs) But she was also pleased because my parents, both being Buddhists, they do respect what it means to be a Buddhist monk. And they're now very proud of me. And in fact, my mum especially comes to my courses and is kind of involved in the Buddhist world more now than she was before. So they're really delighted. That's beautiful. And so let's talk about happiness, because this is so core to something that I think you work to try and reframe for people. Lots of people have an idea of what happiness is. So how do you define happiness? What does it mean for you to be happy? I think it's very much connected to the mind, isn't it? Happiness is a feeling, a state of mind. And I think the problem in our lives, especially these days in modern times, is that we constantly externalize it. We constantly make these assumptions that happiness will come to us from external things. And to a certain extent, that's true. Obviously, if something nice happens, if we're in a nice situation, we are happy. But I don't think that's the whole story. I think that kind of happiness is not lasting, it's temporary, and it depends on so many different factors. So from the meditation point of view, happiness, it's a much more direct experience of the mind, which you can cultivate. You, know, you don't need lots of things to make you happy, but we could learn how to make ourselves happy. It's to do with training our minds in terms of our thoughts and our emotions. I always use this example, I think I use it in my book, where I say, imagine how it feels when you are happy and say something amazing has happened and as a result of that you feel happy then explore how you actually feel in that moment. Your body and mind feel relaxed. Your mood is kind of joyful and positive. Well, that's something you can cultivate anywhere. It's almost like you could cut out the middleman and go straight for the feeling just by cultivating a peaceful, happy, positive, contented mind. I really wanted to ask you about this because I sometimes wonder if it's a language challenge in English because we don't have so many words to describe that feeling. And I think in my own experience of unpacking this and, you know, doing a little bit of meditation, that happy rush, for me, happiness is like a rush feeling, you know, when one of my girls comes up and kisses me, or maybe I do get something nice. But that feeling that you said that word contentment, that kind of word of of serenity and peace and contentment, that's quite a different feeling for me, actually. And I'm wondering 
is it this word that I think sometimes kind of can tie us in knots where people think, well, no, I, I can get happiness externally. I do feel happy when I get a present. And I think it's so different than peace and contentment. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. And I think it all has value. I'm not denying that, you know, things happen and we get a rush of excitement and joy and <laughs> happiness. And that's great. And I'm not suggesting we should go and live in a cave and just meditate and not have any enjoyments in our life. But I think it's about becoming more independent so that, yes, something lovely happens and you feel great. But then also when things are difficult, you can stay positive. I think that's what having a more stable mind can give us, where we can stay positive against the odds. So happiness in that sense is more like freedom, being more free from being so affected by things in our life and also our thoughts and emotions. It's really about balancing up the mind. And, and then also a point I make quite strongly in the book is that I kind of ask the reader to think about, well, are we designed to be happy? Maybe deep down inside, happiness is our natural state and we keep losing connection with that. So maybe meditation is about tapping into what we already have inside. Maybe we're happier than we think. Do you know what I mean? We're so distracted by all the busyness of life that we don't have time to realize that actually deep within is the happiness we always wanted. And I think what's so interesting to me is when we're kind of at the mercy of our minds, and I want to talk about this, and I lived that way for a long, long, long time, life feels like a roller coaster. Like whatever my mind would throw at me, you know, that person's been looking at you funny or gosh, you've not done that. My emotions would then follow. And it was really hard to get, as you're describing, any kind of emotional stability or calmness. It felt like my mind was ruling me. So can you talk to that kind of the freedom? We think we're free, don't we? But really, we're kind of prisoners in these quite erratic minds. Talk to that first, and then I want to ask you a bit more about the mind. But can you talk to this idea of freedom? Yeah, it's such an important word for us, isn't it? Freedom. We all want to be free. And we put a lot of effort into trying to achieve greater freedom in our lives. And we have to a certain extent, we make choices and we hopefully we live the life we want to live and we are free thinking and we have freedom of speech and we can express ourselves and dress how we want and follow whatever philosophical ideas we want. That's the kind of freedom that we hold to very dearly. But then as you've pointed out, deep down inside, we're sort of prisoners at the same time. We're prisoners of what's going on inside us. You know, our moods and our, our emotions and thoughts, we don't always have much control over them. I mean, I think about it how we wake up in the morning and then we're in a bad mood. We didn't plan that. We didn't ask for that. And it just takes over. Or we're trying to get to sleep at night and we can't sleep and we're worrying. We're not deliberately worrying, but it seems to be just churning around in our minds and we don't know how to free ourselves from it. So the problem is, is that our minds often go to places we don't want our minds to go to. And that's a lack of freedom, isn't it? So that's the beauty of meditation is that we're learning how to be free because we're learning how to transform that sense of being a prisoner and learn how to free ourselves from being so controlled by our thoughts and emotions. We're way too controlled, aren't we, by moods and worries and sad memories and I mean, that's all the stuff of life. I'm not suggesting we should give up our emotions. We can't. But can we learn to be less consumed by negative feelings? Can we instead choose 
to think and feel positively, wouldn't that be real freedom to be able to choose how we feel? I think that's the definition of freedom and that's the definition of happiness. And I think there's something really interesting in there around choosing how to feel and also being able to feel. Yes. Because I'm wondering when you were that 20-year-old aspiring actor in New York, was part of you trying to avoid your feelings with that behaviour? absolutely, absolutely. Because I remember when I was performing, I would be not me. I would get out of myself and I would be somebody else. I didn't like myself. I really hated myself. I was filled with self-loathing and was very frightened of my own feelings. That, That traumatic things that happened in my life that I hadn't processed and I just kind of pushed down and then they were sort of tormenting me from within and I didn't want to feel those things. I was terrified of myself. So then meditation is is about making friends with that, isn't it? It's about actually resolving and accepting yourself. Yeah, that's been part of my kind of understanding as well, actually. Did you find it hard then when you first stopped running? You know, whether you're running by pretending to be someone else on stage or, you know, drinking and you said taking drugs. When you stopped, did you feel like almost things got worse before they got better? That was my experience. I know that can be the case with many people. I suppose with me, it was so extreme because I I went to a monastery and I was in such a new situation it almost shocked me into a state of calm. Do you know what I mean? I arrived at this monastery and it was all new and fresh and I was living this new life and learning how to meditate. And actually I didn't find it hugely difficult because it was so new and exciting. But actually a year later, the difficulties began. So I'd already been a monk for a year. And then in my second year, I decided to go into a solitary retreat which is where you literally go into a room and you meditate all day and you, they leave food outside your door and you don't have contact with the outside world. And that retreat was nine months long. So I was alone meditating and that's when I suddenly found I had to face all of this stuff in me and it became worse. It's like you're looking at it more clearly and it, it feels worse. But that's all a process, isn't it? A process of self-acceptance. You kind of have to know yourself and then you start to accept yourself. Yeah, I'm nodding because totally different stories. And, you know, I did not go off to a monastery, but, uh, you know, I, I relate. And I often say that to people, you know, that peace and that calm and everything that you want is kind of on the other side of that discomfort when we first start to unpack perhaps what we have been avoiding. I totally agree. I think that learning to accept those parts of ourselves that we find difficult, that's the doorway to peace and happiness. You know what I mean? Because it's love, it's compassion. We're learning to, to love ourselves, but I don't mean in a kind of egotistical way, like, oh, like I really love myself. I mean, literally love, like the connection between mother and child. A mother loves their child unconditionally. And I think we have to be our own mother sometimes. We could learn to nurture the child within us and accept that in all its glory. And that is happiness. So then it it means that the so-called darkness that we felt inside us has become the doorway to happiness and peace. It's all useful. It's not bad at all. It's all positive. It's not missed on me that the hardest moment of your life, you know, unlocked the key for you to find your purpose and calm and the brilliant way that you're serving the world today. 
I wanted to ask you when you mentioned darkness, because I think something I see in women actually a lot is this kind of fear around anger and resentment. And in the book, you talk beautifully about how those are two blocks to finding this underlying contentment and peace that I think we're all searching for. So can you talk to those and how facing those when perhaps we don't want to can be the key to everything that we want on the other side? Yeah, especially in modern times, I think we all struggle with feeling resentful, feeling irritable. It's a sign of stress, isn't it? We're overburdened. There's too much going on in our lives more than ever before. And it makes us feel trapped. I think in many ways, we can feel trapped by our lives. To a certain extent, I think technology has made that worse. I think technology is a double-edged sword. It can obviously be very productive and you can do good things with technology. But then there's the downside, which is that we're all glued to our phones and we're constantly having the inputs of bad news and all the comparisons on social media, all of that stuff can make us feel quite stressed and quite tense. We don't have any downtime. We're always busy, busy physically, busy mentally. And I think that increases our stress levels. We have a shorter fuse. We get irritated more easily, resentful, angry. And to go back to your question, you know, from a meditation point of view, all of that stuff is good because it shows us where we're at and It's not a problem. In a way, it's the solution itself because we can learn to work with those emotions. Like in my story, the things I have found most I've had to work with and still have to work with are depression and anxiety. I mean, I came to the monastery because of depression and anxiety. And then it came up again in the monastery. In fact, it got very bad 12 years into being a monk. I'd already been a monk for a long time. And I went into another retreat, a longer one. This one was four years long. And in that four-year-long retreat, the first two years were absolute torture because all of that depression and anxiety that I hadn't really fully resolved came back full force. And I had a really difficult time in that retreat. But I learned a little bit how to work with those feelings. And going back to this idea of nurturing and, and accepting and having compassion, So I learned how to not push those feelings away, but instead have some kind of compassion or acceptance towards myself in that moment. So I think the same would go for anger and resentment, whatever the emotion is, sadness, anger, fear. It's all about sitting with that in a meditation and just letting it be. You know, you can feel it in your body. When you feel upset or angry or very sad or worried, you can feel that physically. You can feel it in your heart or your belly or somewhere in your body, a tension of a feeling of like you're stuck emotionally. That itself can become the meditation. You can feel that with full awareness, full attention and not push it away and also not go into all the stories of, oh, but he said this and she said that and that's why I feel like that. Those are the stories in the mind. The reality in this moment is you feel how you feel. You're sitting there with this feeling, that is who you are in this moment, and that's absolutely fine. And just to be with that and meditate into that. sounds strange when I say meditate on it. What I mean is you just feel it with awareness and you don't judge it. You don't chase it. You don't push it away. You just allow it. That's how you can start to resolve those parts of yourself that you've always been running from. It takes so much courage. I felt so struck when you said you know, the first two years, two years of sitting 
just sitting in that place of depression, anxiety, were there moments when you just thought, this is too much for me? Did you really have to draw on on courage? Yes, absolutely. There were moments I just wanted to run away from it all, (laughs) where I wanted to literally just get away and go back into avoidance. The thing about these retreats is they're quite hard because you've made a commitment to stay with your mind for that period of time and to meditate all day. And that is courageous and frightening, but incredibly rewarding because you're really willing to get to grips with who you are. Mm. Do you still experience anxiety today? Sure, I do, of course, yes. But I have more tools to work with it. Gosh, that is so powerful for people to hear because I think so often people might have this perception of you or, you know, other teachers that think that this is a kind of cure-all. I love what you're saying. that Actually, it's not about being able to just feel in this state of bliss all the time, but just be with it. Maybe for some it is. I don't know. I mean, I teach meditation, but I'm not a guru or a spiritually evolved person. I'm on the path like everybody else. Yeah, I give courses, I write books, so I have something I can pass on. But I'm very honest about myself. I'm still a mess, but I'm less of a mess than I used to be. (laughs) What has changed with me is that I'm much more self-accepting than I used to be. I used to be really messed up and then hate myself for being so messed up. Me too. That makes it so much worse, doesn't it? Because you're, you're tormenting yourself. I should be better. How could I be like this? That has changed with me. So now I'm much more self-accepting. And that means that The worry or the negativity doesn't have as much power because I'm learning to be okay with it. And then it lasts for less time or I'm able to put myself into a happier state more quickly. I've got more resources at my fingertips. But yeah, I get stressed. I get worried. I mean, this thing we're all going through now with the pandemic, COVID, it's really worrying. And I worry about my relatives. I worry about my elderly mother. I'm not serene and calm about it. I'm pretty freaked out like everyone else is. But I also know how to stay relaxed and stay happy more than I used to be able to. I think that's so powerful for me to hear and everyone listening that it's really then about, you know, what I'm hearing you say is that these states are part of the human experience. And actually, I know for me that my challenge is was that I didn't know that. I thought there was something wrong with me that I felt these certain things. And yeah, when I kind of learned that actually feeling stressed, anxious, angry, that's just part of the rainbow, you know, of being human. And actually, it was incredible for me when I learned that if you don't numb and run from all the bad stuff, you get more of the good feelings too. Yeah, because if you think about it, when we're having a difficult emotion and then we we label it as bad, that's the label is what makes it so, isn't it? But if you just relax into how you feel, it's just sensations. I mean, if I'm feeling really angry and then I investigate how that feels in my body, okay, what is it? My chest is burning with rage or or I've got this kind of shaking inside. I mean, these are physical symptoms of the anger, aren't they? But if I sit and meditate and just feel those sensations in their very raw state, they're just physical sensations, and then I don't add all the labels to it, it's just energy, isn't it? It's just a feeling. And it is who I am in this moment. And I need to accept that and love this moment as it is. Then it's not bad anymore, is it? It's just a feeling. It takes the sting out of those feelings. But you're not into avoidance. You're not running away from them. You're feeling them fully. You're just not beating yourself up for having those feelings. 
I absolutely love that. And what's coming up for me as you talk about being able to sit with all these feelings is this idea between responding and reacting. And I notice since I've become a mum, there's thousands of opportunities every day to just react, to lose it, to shout, to spike that cortisol, the stress hormone in my body from, you know, gosh, the meltdowns and the myriad of things that happen with young children. And I'm wondering how meditation and this idea of finding freedom from our triggers and our thoughts can help us in our parenting. That's a really good question. And I think it's important to make this very practical because what I've been talking about so far does sound very idealistic. And, you know, we're talking about sitting in retreats and being a monk in a monastery, and that can seem very unrelatable. And it's not like that, really. Everybody can practice these techniques in any situation. And what you said just then about how in being a mother, there are so many opportunities to lose your temper or to get that cortisol spike. But the word is opportunity, isn't it? So in the same way that it's an opportunity to lose your temper, it's also an opportunity for meditation. There's an opportunity to work with that energy. And on a very practical level, I would say that even with a very busy lifestyle, being a mom or also working or in these busy life situations, Everybody can take five or 10 minutes at some point during the day to meditate. So you've got your daily time for yourself where you are working with your mind. But then also in the heat of the moment, in those situations where you're feeling stressed, you can do micro meditations, micro moments of mindfulness while you're tying the shoelaces of your kids so they're all shouting and screaming or whatever, or while you're getting them into the car or while you're going to work or while you're washing your hands, brushing your teeth, any of these moments can be used as mindful experiences. And what that means is that you're training yourself throughout the day in states of calm and being present. It doesn't mean you end up kind of floating around in a serene state. You live your life and life can be crazy, but you've got this inner strength that you can keep going back to through these moments of mindfulness. And then it means that the stressful moments have become opportunities for mind training. I think what I find so fantastic about meditation, and I'd love you to help the listeners unpack this as well, is that actually it would be good to hear the brain chemistry behind meditation. Because what I notice is that the more I meditate, the calmer and the better able I am to handle all of those things. So what's happening in in our brains as we sit for those 10 minutes a day? Why is it that it brings so much calm? Well, I don't know if it's just doing the 10 minutes immediately puts you into a state of calm. I mean, it can be that you can feel quite relaxed after doing your meditation, but it's more an accumulative thing. It's through doing that every day or as much as possible every day, over time, you start to evolve into a more at peace and less stressed. So it's a kind of building up over time. And in terms of brain chemistry, what you're doing is you're training yourself to be less in that fight or flight state. So the brain is going to be creating less of that cortisol, adrenaline, You know, there's a part of the brain called the amygdala, and the amygdala is that stress reactor. It's the part of the brain that activates the fight or flight response. And it's way too overactive in all of us. We're all so primed for stress all the time. 
and our bodies are producing too much cortisol, that chemical of stress. It's a natural part of human life, but maybe there's too much of it nowadays. We're not running from tigers. We're not in physical danger. Some people are, of course, but generally we're not in physical danger all the time. But our bodies react in the same way. Anytime there's any kind of pressure, the amygdala fires off warning signals, and then the body releases that flood of stress hormones. So meditation gets the amygdala to be less overreactive. Now, I once asked a neuroscientist, does the amygdala shrink when you meditate? And he laughed at me. He said, no, no, it doesn't shrink. You're just teaching it to react less so it becomes more stable. And you need the amygdala. You need that danger signal when you are in danger, but only then. The rest of the time, we could be more calm. This is what I find so fascinating is that our brains react in the same way to a major stress. Like you say, you know, back in the day, it would have been being chased by a tiger in exactly the same way to our phones pinging or our children screaming. So if we're not careful, we kind of can end up in that state of perpetual and chronic stress. Do you think there are lots of people living in that state, perhaps even unaware of it? And what are some of the clues that people are in that stress state? Well, I think that's what happened to me when I had that burnout in my early 20s, is that I was living in such a state of fight or flight all the time where it wasn't necessary. I wasn't in danger. My life was not in danger. I wasn't running from lions or tigers or people with guns. But my brain was reacting in the same way. And what happens eventually is you become so oversensitive to things that even one tiny thing going wrong in your day can feel like a huge disaster and everything just piles up. And I have a lot of sympathy for people experiencing that because I've been there myself and I know how prevalent that is, especially in modern life, is that people are overburdened, overstressed. Yeah, as you say, you could be burning out without even knowing it. I do think that meditation has now become almost like a matter of survival. We need it more than ever. And maybe that's why it's become so popular. People call it meditation. They might call it mindfulness. It's become really popular in the West, hasn't it? And I wonder if that's because we're so desperate for something to give us mental peace and reduce the stress. Because the things we do to reduce our stress, generally, they're not permanent. They're temporary fixes. Yeah, exactly. Like TV or wine. They don't work. They don't work for me. Well, what lots of people do is they use substances that make their stress worse. I mean, the classic one is coffee and also alcohol. It can make you feel a bit better, but in the long run, you're just making it worse. And isn't it amazing to discover that you have within you the solution and the solution is just your mind and how to transform your mind? Just breathing can help. And that's your own breathing. That's with you all the time. So let's unpack this because I'm guessing that you know all of the myths and the resistance that people have to meditation. What are some of the ways that you help people overcome those? I think the classic myth is that people think meditation is about stopping thinking. You know, people think you're supposed to clear the mind. I hear this a lot. People come up to me and they say, oh, well, I tried meditation, but I was really useless at it. I couldn't do it. And then I say, well, what do you mean? And they say, well, I couldn't stop my thoughts. My mind is too busy. So they're kind of laboring under a misconception, which is that they think you're supposed to empty your mind and just go blank. And that is really impossible. 
if you try to still your thoughts and remove them, the more you try and push them away, the louder they seem to shout. So that's a big myth, this myth of clearing the mind. And what I try to do is help people to understand that meditation is not about removing the thoughts, but it's about changing your relationship with them. So you could let them go by almost like traffic on the road. Cars can go by and you don't have to get in them. And obviously that's quite difficult. So we need a technique. And that's why most people use the technique of focusing on something like the breathing, for example. You're focusing on your own breathing and your mind does get distracted. Thoughts do come and that's okay. And then you bring yourself back to the breathing. And actually it's just the returning to the breath again and again. That's the thing that makes you stronger. Yeah, that's my understanding of it as well. And how I was taught is that when you notice your thinking and you come back to the breath, that is strengthening the muscle. I was taught to celebrate every time I notice I've wandered because I noticed and then I came back and it's like, that is effectively lifting the barbell in the gym, right? That is it when you, exactly. when you, you notice it. it and you come back. That's that, the muscle. That's so true. And what you said is perfect, but many people don't know that. Many people give themselves a really hard time when they meditate because every time their mind wanders, and then, of course, they're lost in those thoughts, and then they notice that happened, they usually feel like a failure. They feel like, oh, I've blown it again. I've lost it. But what you described is perfect, which is that you notice that your mind has wandered and you come back to the breath. That is great because you've developed that strength of returning. That's the very thing that makes you stronger. So then if that's what makes you stronger, it means the thoughts actually helped you in your strength because the mind wandered. And that's good because now you have the chance to come back. So the thoughts are actually aiding the meditation rather than harming it such a helpful reframe for people. And what about time? I get asked this a lot. I think there's some kind of myth out there. I don't know if you hear this, that you have to meditate for an hour or, you know, you have to be sitting down in a certain way. How do we make this accessible for really busy mums who are probably woken up at 6am with screams and then, you know, the kids go down whenever they do and they're exhausted? You know, how does someone fit it in? How long do they need? I think starting with an hour is really not a great idea because it's almost like, <laughs> yeah. well, for so. one thing, many people don't have an hour. And even if you did, you'd sit there and it would be such torture that you'd never want to do it again. So it's almost like you crash and burn because you bit off more than you can chew. I recommend starting with five or 10 minutes. I mean, really even five minutes to start with, and then you're more likely to do it every day. Yeah. And you might start doing 10 minutes. You might start doing 15 minutes. I, mean, I know people with really busy lives who do 20 or 30 minutes a day, but that's because they've prioritized that. And they've prioritized that not out of duty or thinking, oh, I should do this. It's because they really want to. They've felt the benefits and they want to make time to do that. But you might only be doing 10 minutes a day and you'll still get benefit. And that's because it's not only about sitting down for 10 minutes. It's also about those mini moments, those micro moments throughout the day where you have those going into a mindful state many, many times a day, even while you're busy. I mean, literally standing in a queue at the shop or standing at the sink, washing your hands, that can be a meditation. And there can be lots of noise going on around you. And you can still just for a few moments, feel the ground under your feet, or as you're brushing your teeth, feel the toothbrush against your mouth. So what I'm describing here is, is two approaches that both are good to do every day. One is to sit down for 10 minutes and do a formal meditation. 
and the other is to have these little moments throughout the day. And that means that you're actually meditating a lot if you count all of that up, even while you're busy. So it's very doable for a busy person or you know, somebody who's looking after lots of kids. Whatever the lifestyle is, it's all possible. Thank you for making those distinction between the two. It might be helpful to unpack for people, you know, when they're sitting, what are they doing? Do you recommend using, you know, there are tons of apps these days, aren't there? Do you recommend using one of those? Or is it just a really simple five minute breath meditation? That would be really helpful. Just get super practical for people that are thinking they're going to stop the podcast and go and give it a go. Yeah, there are lots of apps and there's lots of things you can find on the internet where you get some kind of guidance. And I don't think you need that all the time, but it can be quite helpful to start with. It can be helpful to have a guided audio track the first few times. So the guidance tells you now you sit down and focus on your breathing. And when your mind wanders, bring your mind back to your breath. But then eventually, I think it's good to do it silently and solo without needing guidance all the time. We've kind of maybe got stuck into this feeling that we need technology for everything, even meditation. But people meditated for thousands of years before apps were created and, and they did fine. So I would use apps when you need them. But otherwise, it really is just about you sitting there and focusing on your breathing. I think there needs to be some kind of structure. You know, if you just sit there and see how it goes, it becomes a bit messy. So when I say structure, I mean time yourself. You know, I think it's good to make a decision to, that you're going to do five minutes or seven minutes or 10 minutes or something like that. And you have a clock. You could even set an alarm as long as it's a gentle alarm, you know, not something that shocks you at the end of the session, but something where you have a sense of, okay, this is 10 minutes and I'll just sit there and do it. And then you would sit in a good posture. That's really important. Obviously, the traditional meditation posture where you're cross-legged on the floor isn't that easy for everybody. So I know lots of people who meditate sitting in a chair, and that's fine. You can sit on a chair, but I think it's important to sit up straight. I think it's important to have a straight back, which you can achieve very easily by placing a small cushion behind the base of your spine so that there is some lower back support. But you're sitting there in a balanced, symmetrical posture. You know, your feet are flat on the ground, your hands are palms down on your knees or the tops of your legs and your shoulders are nice and open. And so you're in that good posture and then you do your session. And it's really good to have different steps in the session. So I think it's good to start the session with a moment of setting an intention of compassion. I always talk about this, how important it is to start your session by thinking, now I'm going to meditate and I'm dedicating this practice to happiness for all sentient beings, for everybody. It's a feeling of sharing. It's a feeling of I'm doing this for the good of all. Because if I become less stressed, if I become more happy, that's going to have a ripple effect in my surroundings. It's going to help others. So you're making that decision very clearly at the start of the session that this is for you and this is for everybody else. And that's a moment of love. It's a moment of compassion. So you do that for a few seconds, and then you start meditating. And the best way to do it is to start with body awareness. So you're feeling the chair under your body, you're feeling the ground under your feet, just feeling awareness of how your body is, where you're sitting. Do that for a few moments, and then start focusing on the breathing. You don't have to breathe deeply. It's not about deep breathing or slow breathing. It's just normal breathing. But you are focusing on the feeling of the breath. 
I mean, when you do that, do you find, is it easier to feel the breath in your nose or your mouth or your chest? How do you find it most effective? Because everybody finds their own way. Yeah, I focus on the sensation of the breath kind of entering and exiting on the top of my lip. And I sometimes focus on the temperature change, which I can get really, really into. I don't know. It just fascinates me noticing how cool the air is and then the temperature changes it leaves. I can get really absorbed in that. That kind of works for me. Yes. It's sensation, isn't it? You're feeling the sensation. The air is sort of cooler coming in, warmer coming out. So like you described, some people feel the air against their lip or breathing through the nose. You can feel the air moving up and down your nostrils. I mean, that's a very precise focus, isn't it? So that's going to really help you to hone your powers of concentration, being present. You're really in the moment, aren't you? And then the mind wanders. So that's what happens. You're there with the breath and then suddenly you're thinking about other stuff. Normally start to think about the kids, yeah. <laughs> what they're doing, where they are. <laughs> exactly. But then you notice that your mind got lost and you gently bring it back to that place of focus, the air coming in and out of your nose or your mouth. Some people find that's too difficult to focus on such a precise sensation. So they might focus on the rising and falling of their chest or their belly. You know, there's that kind of rhythm of movement in and out in the body as you're breathing. It's just about finding where in your body you can focus on the breath and returning to that place again and again. And you would do that for 10 minutes or however long your session is. And it's messy. It's really messy. I mean, you're there with the breath and then suddenly you're thinking about what to eat later or you're thinking about work or the kids. It feels messy, but that's the beauty of it. You're coming back to the breath again and again, and that's what makes you stronger. Yeah. And I think as a beginner, when I first started, I hated it. I think that's quite useful to call out for people. Just like you said, you know, the two years were excruciating. I hated it. I hated it too. I found it loathsome. (laughs) Yeah. And I was only doing it because I was in a recovery program where they told me I had to do it. I mean, being a monk in a monastery, it felt like a recovery program too. (laughs) It felt like, well, I don't like this, but it's kind of my job or it's what I'm supposed to do. In a way that kept me going because there's a sort of external discipline as well. And all the monks, we had to sit together in the meditation room and kind of not move for the period of the session. And that, that keeps you going in a way. So I would actually recommend finding a meditation group. And now it's difficult, isn't it? Because we're all socially distancing, but actually people are meeting on Zoom they're doing online groups. I think it's quite good to have a friend to meditate with, even if it's... Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And the other other thing is sometimes I have an app, not because I kind of use the guidance per se on the app, but because it gives me a little green dot whenever I do it. And that part of me that just loves seeing a row of green dots, because then it starts you again if you miss a dot. And I'm like, I'm not going to start again. So it's using that kind of, yeah, that kind of validation, I guess, which helps me stick with it when at times I don't want to, because it's not always easy and fun. Let's be real. (laughs) Yeah. But I think that the secret here is to decide that meditation doesn't have to be a certain way. Yes. It doesn't have to be great. Maybe the reason I found it so difficult at first was because I wanted to feel great. I really wanted to feel good in the same way as before I was a monk, I was using all of that kind of excessive wild living to try and make myself feel good. I always wanted to get out of my head. I wanted to get high, feel great. I wanted some kind of buzz or bliss. 
And then I started meditating and I was looking for the same thing. And because I was so hungry for pleasure and happiness, I felt frustrated because my grasping and expectation was tripping me up all the time. And that's why I found meditation so difficult because it wasn't giving me what I wanted. And really what changed for me was when I learned how just to meditate no matter what. And you're feeling bad, but you still meditate and you're okay with that. And you're not trying to make it feel a certain way. You're just being you for those 10 minutes. You're really with yourself however you are. And then it becomes easier because there's less expectation. And isn't that like the real practice that we then get to practice taking into life, which is that it just is what it is sometimes. And actually maybe the real freedom and joy in life is just accepting everything as it comes, as opposed to seeking to continually try and change how we feel. I think so. I mean, I totally agree with you that some listeners might think, oh, but does that mean you live a very kind of passive life? You just accept everything and you never stand up for yourself or you never fight for justice. I don't think it's like that. I think you can accept your own emotions, but you can also make changes in your life. It's not about being passive, but the only way to really make changes in your life and in the world around you and to make society a better place is if you accept yourself, because then you're not at war with your own mind. Yes. internal war has to be resolved if we're going to help others. Yes, that's so true. And also real kind of change, you know, whether it's something tiny in our own lives or on a bigger scale has to come from that place, I think, of responding. I agree. I agree. And we react. I mean, we're seeing it at the moment, aren't we, with riots? You know, when we're reacting out of that kind of pure heightened emotion, I'm not always sure how helpful that is. Yeah, I think there's such a difference between reaction and response, isn't there? I think there's a big difference between responding and reacting. I think we react so often where we're just reacting to life and it's not really conscious. We're just reacting against the situation. And it's almost like we're programmed to react in the same old way. It's not conscious. It's not wise. It's just a bounce back against what's happening. Whereas response is where you see the situation in yourself or in your life. And you can, from a wise, compassionate place, make choices and do something or say something or experience life in a way that's more wise and productive rather than just reacting through stress all the time. Well, that's the freedom, isn't it? That is kind of at the core of your book and your work is that's freedom, that you're not always rallying against whatever's being thrown at you, but you can kind of stand and decide how you want to respond. It's a totally different state of being. And I think that's what you were touching on earlier when you said, well, let's talk about reframing this notion of happiness. Is happiness just a buzz, a high, a feeling, or is it a stable sense of freedom where you can choose how to feel and how to respond to life? I think that's a much richer and deeper place to live from. And it's what I'm working on in myself. I'm working on learning that more for myself and also trying to share with others. And I think that's a message that can be useful in in this day and age where everybody is so caught up in reaction. And we're reacting all the time, aren't we? We're reacting to the news all the time. We're given all this information and we we react all the time, like a knee-jerk reaction. Before we close, just one other thing that I wanted to get your thoughts on is around our children. And I'm wondering 
Do you wish that you'd have known all of this when you were that kind of young boy running from your feelings and really struggling? Or is part of you glad that you had to learn this in the way that you have? Well, the answer is yes and no, because definitely I wish that in my school life, I was taught more about how to deal with things like depression and anxiety. I work with a lot of schools and I think it's fantastic how nowadays schools are integrating mindfulness and emotional intelligence into the curriculum. But when I was a kid at school, that was not there at all. And I wish it had been because when I started to get depressed and started to feel anxious, I didn't have any tools. I didn't know what to do with it. And I felt ashamed and I felt guilty and I felt there was something wrong with me. So I wish I'd had some help with that earlier on in life. I remember when I was at university, I got really depressed to the point where I I was contemplating suicide. And I went to the doctor and without even looking up from his computer, he just said, yeah, lots of people are miserable. And he prescribed some antidepressants and got rid of me. And there was no talking, no understanding of the situation. And that still goes on. We've got a lot more work to do in the field of mental health, but I think it is changing now. There is more intelligence around this stuff now. So I wish that had been there in my upbringing. But then also, you said a very powerful thing, which is, I'm also glad that I had to learn it because it's made me stronger. So looking back at your life, you can see all the things that went wrong and you can see how they helped you to grow. So it's all good. Whatever way around it is, you can learn from anything. Not such a powerful message. And I always ask the same question at the end of every interview, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I think I would love to help people understand that they have a choice in terms of how they feel. I think we don't realise that. I think we're caught up in our own programming, reacting, reacting, reacting all the time. And the gift I would love to give people is to help them understand they can choose. But then you've got to give them methods because it's all well and good to say, well, you can choose how to feel, but then how? So the gift I would love to give everybody is to meditate. I would love everybody to discover the beauty of their own minds through meditation. It doesn't have to be religious. It doesn't have to be Buddhist. It's simply about connecting with yourself and discovering that within you is the happiness you always wanted. That's so beautiful. And then you never know, the children might come and sit and join one day. I think so. I think we can lead by example. If you as a parent meditate, then the children notice that and it becomes normalized. Oh, that's something normal. That's something healthy. And they might go off and do it themselves as well. Wouldn't that be incredible? That's what I hope. That's what I hope for my girls. I'm not, I'm not forcing it on them for sure, but I, I make it known what I'm going off to do in the hope that one, it hasn't happened yet. One day they'll say, oh, can I come? (laughs) Thank you. That was absolute joy. I loved connecting with you and I really would encourage everyone to go and have a look at your work, your workshops and your book, because you describe these, you know, and you teach as people have experienced these big ideas in such practical ways. So thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. I had a really good chat with you. Thank you very much. 
So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.